Hello, Fellowship. Thank you for participating in the elder nomination process. After a deliberate season of prayer, discussion, and seeking the heart of God, our elders have three new candidates for the office of elder to present to you. Hello, Fellowship. My name is Bill Fries. My wife, Lee, and I have been attending Fellowship for over 15 years. During that time, I've been blessed to be part of small group ministry, such as community group leader, welcome and connection team member, prayer team member, and Discover Fellowship support. Our faith has grown from being members at Fellowship Church, and it's a humbling honor to be nominated as an elder candidate. Hi, Fellowship. My name is Charles Greathouse. My family and I have been attending Fellowship since 2008. My wife, Susan, and I have three children, Jonathan, Zachary, and Charlotte. I'm so grateful for how our body has encouraged, challenged, and led our family to the Word of God over the years. From engaging in and leading community groups to serving in FSM as a cell group leader, I have felt His hand at work in this place and through His people. I'm so very humbled and honored to serve you all as an elder candidate at Fellowship. Hi, my name is Nick Rowland and my wife Cassie and I have been a part of Fellowship for 15 years married together and then many more years before that. And Fellowship has been a part of my journey walking with Jesus uh, in so many ways. Going back to middle school and growing up in FSM, I was discipled here and I was taught how to serve here. And as I moved into college and adult years, volunteering in the student ministry and, and reaching a point in my adult life, my early adult life, where I became aware of the desperation of my hurts and my hangups and my habits. And at that time, Celebrate Recovery was a crucial place for me to begin the process of healing. And uh, I've been able to serve in student ministry, on the worship team, in the training center, community groups, and preaching. And it's been just a wonderful place for, for my wife and I to grow. We have a 12-year-old daughter uh, who is thriving here, and my wife serves in the, in, has served in many capacities, currently serves on the worship team. One of the things I appreciate most about this church is the fact that the focus is always put on Jesus and not on any one personality or leader. And so we all are broken people who need Jesus and need grace, and yet the Holy Spirit empowers us to serve in a lot of different ways, and that's a really exciting thing to be a part of. Uh, I'm deeply humbled and honored to be considered as an elder candidate. Thank you, Bill, Charles, and Nick for your willingness to participate in the elder nomination process as a candidate for the office of elder. It's a tremendous responsibility to be an elder of Fellowship Bible Church. Your willingness to be a candidate speaks highly of your character, integrity, commitment to Christ, and service to God through fellowship. Now, if you are a member of our church, we have one more request of you. If for some biblical reason, you feel you cannot follow a particular candidate's leadership, please email me, mirapier at fellowshipnwa.org, stating your biblical objection, and please do so no later than Thursday, February the 29th. After receiving your notice, I will call you personally, and we can discuss your objection, which must have merit based on biblical elder qualifications. We require that all elders have 100% affirmation from our body. If you have no objection, we assume that you are affirming the candidates the elders have set forth from the pool of nominees you provided. Please pray for these new candidates as well as our current elders. And finally, we would like to thank Roger Hill, 
and Scott Thompson for their years of faithful service as elders. They have represented our body well and will now become shepherding elders. If you see them, express your gratitude and appreciation for their years of faithful service. Blessings to each of you. Good morning, Fellowship family. How you doing? Amen. We are the blessed beneficiaries of a new covenant. Amen. Established by Jesus. Scripture says, uh, you know, we're not covenant keepers. We're unfaithful. And so, um, Scripture says, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And so, we are a, a part of a covenant um, uh, between two unchangeable, unshakable uh, parties. God and God. Amen. That's good news. That's good news. Because we are not covenant keepers. And so, um, I, I want to read a scripture, 2 Corinthians 1.20 to start us off. It says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ Jesus. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Let's stand together and sing of our God's faithfulness. Father of kindness, you have poured out grace. You brought me out of darkness. You have filled me with peace. Giver of mercy, you're my help in time of and I can't help but sing. Sing it out. Faithful you are. Faithful you are. Faithful forever you will be. Faithful you are. All your promises. All your promises are yes and amen. Promises, 
church, our confidence is in his faithfulness. Amen. Not ours. We can rest in his faithfulness today. Let's sing this together. I will rest. So I will rest in your promises by confidence. Is your faithfulness. I will. Amen. He's a promise keeper. My confidence is in your faithfulness. It's in your faithfulness. I will rest in your promise. My confidence is in your faithfulness. I will rest. He's a covenant keeper. All your promise is my morning. You guys can have a seat. Man, you guys sound good today. I don't know if it's just the band or you guys or what, but sound really good. I'm Jason McMahon. I am the global pastor. Isn't that, isn't that a cool title? It sounds really cool. I always look at that and think, wow, that's, that, that seems really important, and it's not. <laughs> Thank you guys for being here. We're so glad that you chose to worship here today, and this is a place to belong and connect and I'm gonna give you a couple ways to do that today that are super exciting. And so first is men's ministry. So if you're a uh, wife in here or a girlfriend, please don't turn your ears off because I'm gonna also do some marriage ministry here. If you're in Springdale men's ministry, it's Tuesday morning at 6.30. And as you can see, the locations have changed for both Fellowship Springdale and Fellowship Rogers. So Springdale meets on Tuesdays at New Hope Fellowship because we've grown. And so it's something exciting to be a part of. And then the Rogers Group will meet in the Family Center instead of the Lodge uh, starting uh, March 5th and 6th. So Springdale, March 5th, and Rogers, March 6th. And so we want you to be there. Now, I told the wives and girlfriends to listen. The reason why is because you're gonna have to take the kids to school that day. And my wife was always having to get up and take the kids that day because we're gonna be there early at 6.30. So if you wanna connect in the foyer to figure out how to sign up for that, if you just wanna show up, that's fine, or you can find me out in the foyer to connect and get involved in men's ministry to help you grow and form your soul. But most excitingly today, I wanna introduce you to some friends of mine, the Gately's. And so this is Daniel and Martha Gately, and you can see their lovely family here. This is my buddy, Aki, on their shoulders, and Siri, okay? This is their family, and we're so excited that they're here uh, today from Columbia. Okay, so 
Daniel, tell us what you guys do in Colombia. So we've been in Colombia for about two and a half years now. Uh, we work for SIL, that's a Bible translation organization. And um, my role with the organization is I'm mostly administrative. I help train new missionaries, um, and I also have a, 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 a supervisory role in Bogota. But Martha's work is a little bit different, and Martha's going to talk about that. And so Martha is, and Daniel are part of our deaf ministry at 1030. Okay, so if you ever come at 1030, you see our deaf ministry over here that's growing and flourishing, and it's really cool. It's led by Jeremy and Whitney Simons, okay? And then Whitney is actually here in the front row signing for Martha today. Martha's deaf, and these are some of our global workers so, because these people have an unbelievable global impact. So this is Martha Gately. And so, Martha, you wanna tell a little bit of what you do. My role is to work in translation, Bible translation, for Colombian team there. They um, work making drafts and give it to me as a consultant to check to make sure everything is accurate in Greek and Hebrew. I compare those and make sure they're correct. And after that, they are then approved to be published. And I also have a picture of my office. Yeah, so we're going to show you a picture of her, her office where she works. And this is my office, and you can see my team working there. And also, there's another slide. Mm-hmm. The next slide. This is um, the progress we've made so far. We've done 16 different books of the Bible in Colombian Sign Language, and those have already been distributed in churches to use locally. And now we're working now on Mark and also 1 Corinthians. So that's what we're in process with now. Like a look at that real quick, guys. Yeah. Shocking fact, there is one sign language with a complete Bible translated in the whole world, and that is American Sign Language. Now, with that said, when you see this up there, what all they've given the people in Colombia, Martha's a very talented person, Daniel's a very talented person, but why is sign language so important. Help us to understand that. Well, um, it's important for a lot of reasons. Uh, I like to pick just a couple to start with. Um, the deaf are the largest unreached people group in the world. Um, so it's a huge need in the kingdom. Uh, and we translate the Bible into sign language for the deaf because sign language is their heart language. It's the language that speaks most directly to their hearts. Uh, so we, we want them to have access to the Bible in the best language for them. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Also, the deaf community globally, they are yearning for the word of God. They are getting in touch with many organizations saying, please translate the word of God for us. So it's very important for them. Can you guys imagine like not having God's word, his revelation, and the language that speaks straight to your heart? And so that's what they're doing, is they're providing that for people that don't have that. I made an announcement about joining men's ministry. Well, if you don't have God's word, that'd be tough to even have that earlier. And so these people are there working doing that to provide that. Here's the big question. How do we connect to this work? Because I'm telling you, you don't know these people as well as I do. They're hungry for stuff like this. 
How do we connect to this, and what do you need help with? Um, well, we have a table out there, um, and we'd love to share specific prayer requests with you. We have a lot of things you can pray for, but we're also here in the States um, raising support. We have to meet a monthly support budget before we can go back, um, and currently we need about $1,200 a month. So that's maybe like 20, uh, 25 people giving $50 a month, and we could be back on the field next week uh, translating the Bible. Here's what's awesome about these guys is they told me last week, they were like, Jason, help us. We're homesick. Our kids are homesick. They're ready to go back home. And so if you're looking for something to connect globally, how do I get involved? Find me. Find these guys out in the foyer when this is over. Great opportunity just to pray for them, to get involved. Um, let me offer you this thought, okay? We're at this tipping point where this all works for the deaf people right now because, um, and Whitney told me this earlier, she says, this is the time in history for the deaf people. We've got Wi-Fi, we've got technology, we've got all the things that we can now provide this and it's easier than ever to get this to deaf people, God's revelation. And so it's one of the coolest things that we got. I wanna get these people back to Columbia where they can do their work because they're so talented. So I need you guys to help us do that. If you'll connect, find us in the foyer. I wanna pray for y'all, can I pray for you? Absolutely. Awesome. Lord, we love the Gateleys, and we just pray that you continue to equip their hands, that you bless this church by connecting and belonging with them in this global mission. We thank you for this opportunity today. We pray for this worship service, Lord, that you would just help us uh, to sing from our hearts, to hear God's word preached out loud, and that we would also be able to invest and give that opportunity for the deaf people in Columbia. We thank you, Jesus, and we just pray for this blessing and for this, this time to be now for the deaf people and that you would use us to work in that. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty, can we just thank them one more time? Amen. So many people that still have not discipled and taught this new covenant of grace established by Jesus. So if it's on your heart to help, please help. Grace, you've shown me grace. You lifted my shame. Drawn me with love and kindness Washed, I'm whiter than snow For you have redeemed and made me whole Grace, you shown me grace Lifted my shame Drawn me with love and kindness Washed Whiter than snow, for you have redeemed and made me whole. Jesus, you have won me, you have broken every chain with love and mercy, you have triumphed over.
Jesus, we are so incredibly thankful that you are faithful even when we fall short and we are not. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest in your goodness this morning. No matter what we came in with, whether it was doubts or joys, hurts, things we're thankful for, Lord, we lay them down at your feet and we we just want to receive from you this morning. Lord, I pray that we will be able to rest in who you are, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may see. Well, I think, uh, I think some stories are just told over and over again. You know, I think about A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens. It's written in the 1800s, and we've got plays about it. We've got movies about it. The Muppets have a movie. Mickey has a movie. Will Ferrell has a movie about The Christmas Carol. Or maybe, maybe you could go with Romeo and Juliet, right? A classic Shakespeare, 1500s, that man is old. And yet, we are watching a modern version of this beautiful love story unfold before our very eyes. <laughs> Taylor's boyfriend knows what he's doing. My, my favorite story, The Grinch. It's a great book. It's Jim Carrey's most terrifying work. And this new, this new cartoon version, have you seen it? It's a bit of a tearjerker. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's really, really good. Every time I watch it, I get choked up with my kids. Good stories are told over and over again. And I actually think that's true of the story that we're looking at today. You see, I think the story that we're unpacking this morning is probably one that you're more familiar with than you even realize. I think it's one that even if you've never read it from the text of 2 Samuel, even if you don't know who the characters are, by the time we're done talking about it, you're going to realize you know this story far too well. And it's one that you've heard before. You see, we'll be looking at the story of Mephibosheth. Yes, that is a man's name, a name only a mother could love. And somehow in the Bible, there are two of them, all right? We're going to be looking at one. The first is Saul's son, Saul, the first king of Israel. He has a son whose name is Mephibosheth, and things don't end up so well for him. We're not talking about Saul's son. We're talking today about Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. And when this story takes place, we know David is on the throne. David is king. It's in 2 Samuel that we find this story, chapter 9. And if you have your Bible and want to open up to there, we'll, we'll begin in verse 1. Because the story of the grandson of Saul, Mephibosheth, begins with King David saying to his people, hey, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? And I imagine when these words came out of David's mouth, everyone who was with him, they instantly were scared. Their hearts began to beat faster. Their stomachs dropped a little bit because they knew what was following in these words. You see, it was common practice in the ancient Near East. Anytime a new king ascended to the throne, he would seek out the previous king's house members and put them to death because you didn't want anybody to rise up and usurp your power. You didn't need anybody coming to fight against you to recapture the throne. And so as David is saying these words, I think most people who are with him hearing it are thinking, 
all right, we're going to do this. We're going to go put all of Saul's house members to death. But quickly, David flips the script because he doesn't do what other ancient Near Eastern kings did. No, he was going to be a, a different kind of king. And he actually says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul so that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? David's a little bit different of a king. He's going to do things differently. He's not seeking to destroy. He's seeking to show kindness. And, and let me just pause here for a second. I want to point something out to you. You see, David was promised a blessing by God. That's what, that's what Sam talked about in chapter seven, the Davidic covenant. And following that blessing from the Lord, what does David do? Well, he responds in a prayer of thankfulness, this, this time of thanksgiving. Well, the next recorded words that we have of David in scripture are these, these words that seek to enact kindness. And I just, I think it's interesting, worth noting, that David goes from words of thankfulness to acts of kindness, that it's this posture of thankfulness that actually precedes an outpouring of kindness in his life. It's a, it's a, it's a thankfulness that goes before generosity or a thankful heart that leads to a kind heart because that's what David is out to do. He's, he's here to show kindness to this member of the household for Jonathan's sake. And we know why he says that, it's because he and Jonathan had a covenant with one another. You can see it all the way back in 1 Samuel in chapter 20. In 14 and 15, David and Jonathan are talking. And Jonathan actually asked David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Don't, don't cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. Even at the end of that chapter, they make a promise to one another saying, we've sworn the both of us in the name of the Lord that the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. You see, David and Jonathan made this covenant with each other, that they would show the steadfast love of the Lord to one another and to each other's households forever. Interestingly enough, this word steadfast love is the same word that David uses in 2 Samuel chapter 9 when he says, is anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness? It's this word hesed, the loving kindness of God. And Jonathan and David made a covenant with one another that they would show the loving kindness of God to each other and their family members forever. And that's exactly what David is doing now that he's king. He actually is seeking out members of the house of Saul. And someone, a servant of the house of Saul, was brought to him. His name was Ziba. And they bring him to David, and, and the king talks to him and says, are, are you Ziba? Now, just for a second, imagine the fear in this man. He's a servant of the house of Saul. There's a new king. His name's David. And David sends men to go get him and bring him in. Ziba for sure thought this was the end. Ziba is thinking that he's being put to death, that he's being brought before the king, that he can be cut off from this world. And when David looks at him and asks, are you Ziba? Ziba answers pretty intelligently. He says, I'm your servant. And the king looks back and he says, is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And I imagine here that all of a sudden Ziba's fear is mixed with some confusion. Because he's going, I think I'm going to be put to death. 
And, and I still think I'm gonna be put to death. And you're asking for more members of the house of Saul, but you say so, it's, so that you can be kind. And Ziba gives an answer. He says, there still is a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And I can't prove to you why Ziba mentions that last line, he's crippled in his feet, but we can get some educated guesses. And I think what he's doing is he's being honest. He's answering the king. And yet he's also protecting the house of Saul. Because he's going, yes, someone is alive, but don't worry, David. He cannot do anything to hurt you. He can't raise up an army. He can't come against you in a battle. He's crippled in his feet. He is of no threat. And it's true. This son of Jonathan actually was crippled in his feet. You can read about it earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 4. It's a story that says Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and he became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. You see, it's a story that we can pass over pretty quickly because it's, it's one verse. But it gives us the context to understand the bigger story that we're looking at today. It's, it's horrific. It's, it's tragic. Because it says that there was a son of Jonathan. He was five years old. Five. That's the age of my son. Five-year-old boys like to play with sticks. They throw rocks. They wrestle too hard, but they'll still snuggle their mom. It's an age where they're still innocent. They're exploring. They're learning. And what we see in this story is that when he was five years old, the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, meaning the news that Saul, his grandfather, Jonathan, his father, had died. The king and the heir had been put to death. And that news came to this camp where Mephibosheth, the son, was. And this whole camp goes into a panic. Because if both the king and the heir have been put to death, then this camp is being sought after next. And there's this nurse who's there with Mephibosheth. She's cared for this boy since he was young. And I imagine her in her haste, in her panic, trying to save him. She runs to Mephibosheth. She picks him up. They look at each other. He's too young to know what's going on, but he's old enough to know it's not right. And it says that she picked him up, and in her haste as she fled, he fell. I don't know if he was trampled. I don't know if he was stepped on. I don't know if it was just the, the wrong kind of fall, but he was paralyzed. It's a horrible story. A, a little boy who had everything. He went from walking with the king, his grandpa, the king. He had no needs. All of his wants were met. He had not a worry in the world. Everything flipped. Because in one moment, he lost his grandfather. He lost his father. He was paralyzed. He lost his ability to walk. And in that day and age, meant an ability to provide for yourself or for a family. And sadly, in that day and age, it meant he, a lot of people probably thought he lost his value. Mephibosheth went from walking with the king to hiding in fear and shame from the king. Until David went looking. Because David's talking to Ziba and he says, well, where is he? And Ziba responds, well, he's in the, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amul at Lo-Debar. And interestingly, Lo-Debar, it actually means no pasture or it can mean no thing. It means nothing. Mephibosheth went hiding 
He was a kid who had nothing, was nothing, living in the land of nothing. And he grew up there. And that's where this story is. There's a king who goes looking for a man who was nothing, had nothing, living in the land of nothing, and brings him in. David calls for Mephibosheth to come to him. And just think of the fear in this kid now. Mephibosheth is going, what, what? I'm certainly being put to death. I'm the son of Jonathan. I'm the one who could rise up and actually counter David in his throne. Mephibosheth goes to the king and it says he fell on his face. He paid homage. And I imagine that fear is just gripping him entirely. He's waiting to hear what's going on. He's, he's expecting the sound of a sword to be unsheathed, and yet it's just silence. And the silence is deafening, every second feeling like a minute as Mephibosheth lays there and he hears these words. Mephibosheth. He hears his own name. From the voice of the king, he hears his name being called. And he responds and he says, look, I'm your servant. David begins to speak to him and he says, don't fear. You, you don't have to be afraid because I'm going to show you kindness for your father's sake. David begins to care for Mephibosheth, comfort him. And David actually then begins to promise Mephibosheth something. In fact, David makes two promises to this man. He actually says to him, look, all, I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Meaning David is gonna give to Mephibosheth the farmland that Saul had. The land that could be tilled and, and livestock could be raised on, crops could be produced on. David is promising provision to Mephibosheth and his family. But he doesn't just promise him provision. David also says, and you shall eat at my table always. You'll have access to me. You'll be able to talk with me. You can come to me. I want you in my presence. David says, you can commune with me. You're welcome with me at my table. And Mephibosheth, he doesn't even know how to respond. I'm not sure if he's just baffled or if he really trusts it, but, but he's, he's laying there and he says, my Lord, why would you show regard for a dead dog? such as I. He can't comprehend this kindness. We're not told what David says to Mephibosheth in that morning. We are told what David does next is he actually starts talking to Ziba. And he employs or he commissions Ziba. He says, look, I've given all the land that was Saul's to Mephibosheth. And now Ziba, you're gonna work it. You, your sons and your servants, you're gonna till the land you're gonna bring in the crops and you're going to make this provide for Mephibosheth and his family. And Ziba says, yeah, I'll do it. It's there that the, the story actually begins to close. You see, it closes saying that Mephibosheth ate at David's table. Like one of the king's sons. This man went from nothing to a place of an heir. And it says that he had a young son whose name was Micah. You see, not only was Mephibosheth's life changed, no, this was a generational act, a generational changing act by the king. It was a future-saving act of kindness by the king. 
It closes out saying Mephibosheth was provided for. He lived in Jerusalem. He had communion with the king because he ate at the king's table and he was lame in both his feet. I was reading that story and I was trying to figure out why does the author end this beautiful story of a kind king welcoming someone in with he was lame in both of his feet? And I think it's with intention. Because the author is noting that Mephibosheth did nothing to earn his way to this table. He was brought to it. He was invited to it. He was seated at it. This is a story not about Mephibosheth earning something, but it's a story about a king giving everything. So did you catch it? Can, can you figure out where you've maybe heard this story before, why it's a little familiar, why it resonates with us? You got this undeserving person who's alienated and outcast. They're unable to change their position, what they do or who they are, and yet they're met by a king who's kind and generous, who welcomes them, invites them, restores them. You see, the reason we know this story is because it's our story. We are Mephibosheth. We're the ones who were outcast and welcomed in. This is our story. I mean, it's, it's mine for sure. I'm Mephibosheth. I mean, th this is me as a child. This is me in junior high in all my glory. Just trying to figure out what it is to be a kid, trying to figure out how I fit in, who I am and what I do. But even at a young age, I know the hurts of this world in pretty profound ways. I've shared with you all before, many of you know that I was sexually abused as a kid. And that abuse rattled me because I didn't know who I was or what was going on. I felt worthless and weak. I was stuck and abandoned, embarrassed and ashamed. And I ran into hiding because it didn't matter what I would do. My innocence was stripped and it was never coming back. I was stuck. But not only was I hurt in this world, but I have to admit I was adding to the hurt in my sinfulness. Because even at a young age, I was hurting others. I was rejecting the Lord. I was sinful, choosing my own fleshly desires rather than the way of God and my Savior. And it was that mix of sinfulness and the hurts of the world that just left me feeling all the more worthless, all the more weak, all the more stuck. And it didn't matter what I did. I couldn't perform my way out of that feeling. I couldn't forget that feeling. I couldn't suppress it. Nothing that I could do or could try would ever change who I was or what had been done to me. I was stuck. But I met a king. And I met a king not because I went looking for him, but because he came knocking on my heart. And it wasn't the power of this king that caught me. It wasn't the strength of this king that lured me in. No, it was the kindness of this king that overwhelmed me because I met a king whose name was Jesus and he provided for me and he gave me communion with him and he sat me at his table, not because of who I was, but because of who he was, not because of what I'd done, but because of what he had done. You see, Jesus gave me an invitation to his table and I sit there, but the beauty is I don't sit at that table alone because this isn't just my story. Many of you are there with me because this is your story too. You know what it's like to hurt. We know what it's like. We, we know the pains of this world, abuse, neglect, shame, divorce, depression, mental illness, loss, you name it. 
We know what it's like to lose loved ones way too early. We know what it's like to be dealt cards that are unfair. We know what it's like to be stripped of our innocence and inflicted with shame. I don't got to convince you of the fallenness of this world. But the truth is, we aren't just recipients of the fallenness of this world. No, we also add to it. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, the scriptures say, as humans, have rejected the king who is seeking us. We've turned away from his ways and we've chosen our own. And in our sinfulness, we're alienated from him. The scriptures say that we're separated from him. We're distanced from a holy God in our unholy sinfulness. And in our sins, we're not just distanced from this king, we're actually dead. We're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. You see, Mephibosheth said that he was a dead dog before David. But we, in our sins, we're truly sunk in our grave before a holy king. And there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can do to earn our way out of that because all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags before the Lord. We can't earn our way out of our sinfulness. We can't earn our way out of changing who we are. We can't provide for ourselves and we have no way of getting into communion with God. We're stuck Way worse than being stuck in Lodabar, this land of nothing. No, we're stuck in our own sinfulness. And yet there is a king who comes searching. You see, David sought out Mephibosheth. And it's a real act of kindness. But it's an act of kindness that is a signpost that directs our eyes towards Jesus, the true king who seeks after us. Even in our sin, because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came for us. Even as we were separated from him, he wanted life with us. He's calling to us. And it's not because of who we are that he saves us. It's because of who he is. And that's why Titus even says that the goodness, catch these words, the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy You see, the Lord saves because of who he is and what he did, not because of who we are and what we've done. It's his mercy that welcomes. It's his love that invites. It's his kindness that saves. David was a king who called to Mephibosheth by name. And we have a king who calls us by name too. We have a kind king who is pleading and calling to us. He says, my daughter, my my son, you don't have to be afraid. I haven't brought you here to put you out. I haven't brought you in to cast you in shame. I I haven't brought you here to put you to death. No, my son, my daughter, I've brought you here to show you kindness because I love you. I want you. I want to provide for you. I want to commune with you. I want to be with you. I love you. And that's why David actually says that surely goodness and mercy would follow him all the days of his life because his king is with him. And that's why we look forward to dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. You see, we have a promise too that our God would provide for us and commune with us. 
Now we get to experience that in part today. The provision and the presence of our king, we experience that partly now. But we look forward to the day where we get to experience it in totality, in fullness. That coming day when everything is remade, the, the, the day where Jesus' redemption is brought to a culmination. We look forward to that day where brokenness is corrected, where hurts are healed. Can you imagine that? The beauty of a new heavens and a new earth where we walk as we were intended to in the glorious resurrected bodies that God gives us just like Jesus's. That there's redemption and forgiveness. It's a beautiful day and the provisions of our Lord are offered to us in fullness. Can you imagine that? That wonderful day that we look forward to where cancer is beaten and it no longer has any say in our lives. We look forward to the day where dementia is forgotten and the loved ones that we have who can't remember names and places, there's a day coming where you'll remember all the memories with them. We look forward to the day where our lost loved ones are with us again as we walk and sit. We look forward to the day where mental illness is eradicated, depression doesn't haunt and shame doesn't know your name, the abuse of your past has no room in your mind. We look forward to the day where we don't decay anymore where arthritis doesn't get to dictate how and how we do not move. No, we look forward to the day where there is no pain and there are no tears. Can you imagine that day? How beautiful and wonderful it would be to sit under the provision of the king, but let me tell you the true beauty of that coming day. The true beauty of that coming day is communion with the king. It's unhindered relationship with Jesus. It's not being distanced or separated anymore. It's being welcomed in. We're no longer alone. We're no longer stuck. We're no longer afraid. But with confidence, we not only approach the throne, but the table that Jesus set with your name at it. You see, the story of Mephibosheth is a story where a king went searching. And that's the same story that we love, that we have, that a king came searching because Jesus invites us to his table too, that he would provide for us and that we would commune with him. The story of Mephibosheth is about an outcast being welcomed. And isn't that us? That we were undeserving, yet kindly desired. That we were alienated, yet brought in. That we were sinful, and yet in the hesed love of God, that loving kindness, we were invited. You see, I, I, I told you that new Grinch, it's actually a tearjerker. And there's a scene at the very end of it where Cindy Lou is inviting the Grinch to dinner. I, I want you to listen to the reason why she invites him. You've been alone long enough. Is that not the words that our king says to us? That you've been alone long enough, come to my table. I don't want you by yourself. I want to be with you. 
You can't do it on your own. Don't try and provide for yourself. Let me do that for you. You've been alone long enough. The words that your Savior Jesus whispers to you as he calls you by name. And that's where we meet him. At his table. Under his love and his merit. His accomplishments and his work. His kindness. And that's what we'll do this morning. As we'll meet Jesus at his table as we take communion again. During these songs, the elements will be passed. And as they are, grab them. They're double cup, but hold on to them. We'll take them together.
us to repentance. Lord, let your kindness let it lead us to
there's a paradox that's a little bit difficult for me to wrap my mind around, and it's the reality that I don't deserve to be at the table, and yet I'm wanted at the table. I'm welcomed at the table. And if you're like me and that's difficult to, to reconcile, then don't, don't forget that this is what Jesus has been doing forever. Look at the picture that we have depicted of, of the Last Supper, the last meal that Jesus would share before his sacrifice, before his death. And look who he invited to that table. The last meal that Jesus is gonna share, who does he invite? He invites the man that he know would betray him and sell him for a bag of coins. The last meal that he has, who does Jesus invite? He invites the man that he knew who would deny him three times, even though he said, oh, I never will. Who else did he invite? Two brothers who asked to rain fire down on a town because they were angry. He invited a man who sold out the people of God to be a tax collector for the Roman citizen to make himself rich. You see, Jesus has been inviting people who have been alone long enough to his table. And he's been inviting undeserving to his people and that's what we remember as we take communion. That Jesus brings us to his table not based on our merit but based on his. Not based on who we are but who he is. Because the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. And that same meal, he took the cup, he poured it. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take, drink, do this in remembrance of me. You see, we have a kind king who welcomes you to his table. And there's one response that we can give to a kind king. It's worship. It's complete and total worship in our actions, in our minds, in our lives, recognizing that he is the worthy lamb. So in this moment, will you worship with us? The one true kind king who has invited you to his table.
and perfect holy God. And we have a seat at his table. Amen. Always have a seat at his table because he is a good and gracious God. Well, Fellowship family, it's been an honor worshiping with you today. And so uh, I do want to point out to my left and your right, there's a hallway over there. It's got a prayer room. You take it, you turn right, there's a prayer room there. There's going to be people waiting to pray for you if you so uh, want to do that. If not, uh, Fellowship, be safe as you go, and we'll see you next week.